This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. My biggest takeaway has really been to not ignore my gut. Extended reporting projects take time. I view the education as not just being for the students who are benefiting from internships or working with Iowa Watch, but also for readers. And at times lead to unanticipated discoveries. Naturally, I wanted to get to the bottom of what happened to that gun and polygraph machine. The costs of repairing Iowa's public safety vehicles, plus an unexpected wrinkle. Our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. This weekend, iowawatch.org is reporting that Iowa Department of Public Safety vehicles sustained a five-year high of $850,000 worth of damage in 2018. That's 63% higher than the damage reported in the previous year, 2017. But that's not the only story in this Iowa Watch investigation, as you'll learn as we take you inside the reporter's notebook and let the story unfold. Kay Rambo was an Iowa Watch intern during the spring semester 2019, part of his education as a student at Iowa State University. He began an in-depth reporting project on a topic that ended up extending his time with Iowa Watch into the summer and start of fall, so that he could complete what became a complex reporting project. Iowa Watch's Lyle Muller supervised Rambo's work. They talk now about the reporting project. Initially, what I wanted to work on with Iowa Watch was a story about the Executive Council of Iowa. Um, it, is a, it is a council made up of the highest offices within the executive branch of the Iowa State government, um, and really just looking at all of the expenditures they approve, and really how much time do they spend on each item, how much oversight actually exists within that group. And that was kind of the broad idea that I had initially brought to Iowa. And when we're talking about the top officials, we're talking about the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, the executive cabinet, basically. And so you started digging into that. What interested you in doing this? What was the thing that prompted you to look into this? Initially, I became aware of the Executive Council and the functions they served while I was writing a story for the Iowa State Daily about um, the university's hiring of a private law firm actually from Kansas City to represent them in Title IX litigation. Um, And while I had gotten all the documents from the university pertaining to that hiring, I then found documents that they had to submit to the Executive Council to get approval to do so. So you got documents from Iowa State University. Yes. Did you get anything from the Executive Council? No, it included um, the documents that were given to the Executive Council came from Iowa State um, that they had submitted to the Executive Council. Um, I did start looking at meetings from the Executive Council to see what type of discussion there was when they approved the university's decision to hire this private law firm. What did you find out? There had been no discussion within the Executive Council itself about that decision. It was uh, merely just the approval of them hiring the outside law firm. Thus gives birth to the capstone project of trying to find out how they're doing these things. And as you were looking at this story, what were some of the factors that you thought made it an interesting story, such as time spent in meeting, time spent recording their the actions that they were doing? 
the biggest thing to me was the money that that they're approving uh, to be used in, you know, hiring certain people or paying certain state agencies, reimbursing certain uh, expenses. Um, you know, a lot of the emergency allocations that are paid out go through the executive council. It just seemed like a lot of money being spent or approved to be spent and very little time spent in those discussions. There could be discussions somewhere else, naturally, but not at the executive council level you were seeing, correct? Correct. And that was according to the minutes, according to the time that was spent on the topics. How did you come to that conclusion? Many of the meetings uh, in the last couple of years and, and beyond that, but we mainly examined 2017 and 2018, there was a time listed for when the meeting officially began, and then there was a time listed for when the meeting ended. And uh, initially, I thought there had been some mistakes in the note-taking because, you know, I think the first one I looked at was about four minutes long, and there was 11 different items that they had approved in that short time. And you came to me when you wanted an internship at Iowa Watch and proposed this as a story to be done, and we were interested in it. Yep. You started digging into that. What happened? I naturally started finding more stories that I felt like I needed to pursue. And we'll learn more about how this project went in unexpected directions in a moment. I'm joined now, though, by the executive director and editor of Iowa Watch, Suzanne Benke. Let's start by distinguishing extensive, long-form journalism from other journalism done on a daily basis. There are definite distinctions between those types of reporting. Everyday reporting could be going and covering a city council meeting, a planning and zoning commission board meeting, having an interview with someone who's doing an interesting program in the community. These are stories that may take one day, two days, a couple of days to put together and, and research uh, and are really capturing the everyday events and information that's that's happening in a community. Whereas investigative, long-form journalism requires patience and time because it is a commitment in resources and asking and asking some hard questions that may lead to more questions. So a long-form investigative piece could take several months. Uh, in my time in newsrooms, I've seen some long-form investigative pieces take over a year to put together from the very first uh, tip uh, someone calls in to the time a story actually appears in a newspaper or on a news outlet's website or in broadcast. Very, They are very different animals. And I have said for a long time, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that all reporting is investigative just by definition. But when we use it as a term of art, we are talking about these things that are not breaking news and do have this long cycle. And that's what we had in the case of Iowa Watch intern Kay Rambo with his story. This was not rushed to publication. There was extensive fact-checking that went on. And that led to him living with this story, in essence, for the better part of a calendar year. That is true. This extended beyond his internship to and, and hinged upon getting just a few documents to double check some facts. And that is what investigative journalism is. You are making sure that all of the facts are correct. And since it's not an everyday story, you have the luxury, but you also have the privilege and uh, the responsibility 
to be sure that what you are publishing is accurate and you've checked off every single fact, you know, maybe one, not even just once, but two or three times. Uh, and sometimes those facts can change, which requires you to go back again and perhaps re-interview someone. So in the case of Kay Rambo, we were fine with holding on to the story to make sure that it was done well and done accurately and to the standards that are required for an investigative journalism piece. This is one of the very gratifying things where you find yourself uncovering more and more and more, peeling different layers of the onion, as they say. And you may sigh a few times along the way because you think there's just no end in sight, but it just shows how important the journalism is because you're going further in depth where most would just hit it at that surface layer. But to get the full truth, it does take time and it does take, as you note, a commitment. And that does not come cheap in professional newsrooms these days. It does not. And as a nonprofit news organization, you know, we are very grateful to uh, our supporters and our donors who help us make it possible to do more investigative journalism that benefits Iowans. How do you view the role of Iowa Watch with regard to the educational element of these And I don't want to say future journalists because they're doing real journalism right now, but these individuals who will soon be making it their their full life's work. I Will Watch offers a very different kind of internship uh, for those students who are interested in uncovering problems, getting very deeply invested into maybe one or two topics during the course of their internship and producing maybe a handful of stories. But they are stories that will matter to people across the state, perhaps in particular to certain areas or certain regions, and they will be well told. And I view the education as not just being for the students who are benefiting from internships or working with Iowa Watch, but also for readers and for people who are taking in the news stories that Iowa Watch journalists produce. We are helping educate communities. We are helping educate Iowans on matters of importance. So the education component goes in several different directions. Suzanne Benke, thanks. When we come back, more about one student journalist's efforts to follow the road where it leads. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. We continue now with more of a conversation between Kay Rambo, an Iowa State University student and Iowa Watch intern this year, and Lyle Muller, who supervised his work as executive director and editor of Iowa Watch and who stayed on with the project after retiring from that position. They talk about how tracking down information on one aspect of a story can lead to discovering far more information on other aspects. Let's talk about some of those stories. 
you were digging into expenditures and you found something about repairs of state patrol cars, state law enforcement cars. Tell us what you were finding. Initially, I just started taking notes when I started to see some of the meetings had upwards of 15 to 20 different requests in the same meeting to make repairs to uh, Department of Public Safety vehicles, many of which were in the thousands of dollars. Um, And then I thought, well, they must submit them all for a year at once. Well, then I found another meeting that was like that, then another meeting that was like that. Um, And it became clear to me at that time that many of these that there, first of all, that there was a lot of accidents taking place, uh, just given uh, the amount that they were showing up in those records. Um, and then, of course, I wanted to know where the money came from, what had caused those accidents, uh, that sort of thing. And the time frame for this was what? 2017 and 2018. 2017-2018. What did you learn as you dug into that? And we'll talk about how you learned it in a second. But first of all, what did you learn? How much was being spent and where was the money coming from? Well, I learned that there were certain circumstances in which damage was being done to DPS vehicles um, that the Executive Council reimburses using money from the General Fund of Iowa, which is mainly tax dollars. Um, Beyond that, I did learn that there were significantly more accidents that do not go to the Executive Council because they simply don't meet that criteria. What kind of cost are we talking about here? Well, in in the period of time we examined, which again was 2017 and 2018, it was a total of $1.369 million of damage reported being done to DPS vehicles. Over that two-year period. And then how much of that was paid by the state of Iowa. Uh, the Executive Council approved over $500,000 of tax money mainly to be spent on uh, reimbursing some of those expenses. And the rest came from? The rest of that money would have come from insurance claims, um, both from the department and then obviously if it was a motorist outside of the department who was responsible for the damage, the state would request that they reimburse that money. So that's interesting in and of itself, but there was a process you went through to find this because this is not what you were looking for initially. Tell me what was going through your mind as you came across this figure and tried to develop that into a story. Well, I think my biggest question was why has the cost uh, in the last two years been so much and, and is it always that much? And what we found was that in 2018 alone, there was over $800,000 of damage reported to DPS vehicles, which in the five years that we've been provided thus far by DPS, that was the highest total by, by a wide margin. And so you did have to contact the Department of Public Safety and work through that. What were the kinds of hoops that you had to go through when you had to report this story? In large part, it was a lot of phone calls, it was a lot of emails, um, it was a lot of clarification, and basically, you know, the way it works is you're asking broad questions initially, and then you begin to narrow it down to the very finite details that you need to find, and the questions become more and more specific, uh, which, in my experience, often causes longer wait times between asking the question and, and actually having it answered. You also were able to go through some documents, were you not? That's true, I was. What kind? 
Um, in large part, the documents that we had access to were from the Executive Council, so we could see a lot of these individual claims to vehicles um, where they were, you know, hitting a, hitting a raccoon would cost $3,000 or hitting a deer would cost $5,000, things like that. And there are probably people who have been in car accidents, those same accidents, and can relate to those costs. Absolutely. But there were other things going on, too. These cars are expensive. Yes. While you were going through the records, you found something else. I sure did. Tell us about it. One of the claims made was from March of 2018, and it was submitted in a June Executive Council meeting, and it said it was to cover damages. Uh, the note that was provided with that was that a Department of Public Safety vehicle had been broken into in St. Louis, and a gun and a polygraph machine had been stolen out of it. Naturally, I wanted to get to the bottom of what happened to that gun and polygraph machine. And this is something we hadn't heard about. Correct. It hadn't been in the news at all, hadn't been reported widely. Uh, in fact, we just discovered it. You did as you were looking at this. Take us through steps you went through to piece this together because you had to talk to multiple agencies. Tell us who those were. Well, I started with trying to reach out to um, the Iowa Department of Public Safety to see try to see if I could find some details on how the gun was stolen, um, you know, why there was an agent in St. Louis to begin with. Um, and initially they were unable to provide many details. Um, so then what I started to do was contacting St. Louis Police Department, St. Louis County Police Department, and also St. Charles Police Department, which is an adjacent city, um, and trying to get some record of this gun being stolen because we knew um, it was from an Iowa Department of Public Safety vehicle. We knew it was stolen on March 25th, 2018, and we knew that it was done in St. Louis, according to the records. What was the response from the Missouri law enforcement officials? Each agency said they had no record of it taking place. Did that strike you as odd? Yeah, absolutely. And so to try to find out this, you still were able to get records eventually. Correct. How did that come about? Well, I was able to discern actually from speaking with Lieutenant Rick Pierce, who is the commander of the Iowa State Patrol Fleet and Supply. Um, he actually brought up the incident when I was speaking to him about damages. Um, and I was able to figure out through our conversation that it had been a special agent with the Department of Criminal Investigation. Um, and then I began contacting officials within the Department of Criminal Investigation um, where I was able to confirm the name and the job that, that that agent held. And at which point I was then provided with the original report from St. Louis Police Department. Via the Iowa Department of Public Safety. Correct. Did you run into any roadblocks as you were trying to get this information? This would seem to be a fairly sensitive matter for the Department of Public Safety. Of course. Uh, initially, you know, we I was told I would not be able to get the name of the agent. Um, I was told uh, somewhat conflicting reports about how many weapons have been stolen from DCI, uh, whether there was an incident that happened last play, uh, last year at all. Um, so it was, it was things like that and trying to sift through what did and did not make sense to eventually find what was the truth of the situation. But eventually you were able to piece it together. Correct. But another issue came out of that, and that involves how we store these items, these weapons, if we're a state patrol trooper or a DCI agent in Iowa. What did you learn? I learned that 
right around half of the Iowa State Patrol vehicles don't have any capability beyond the locks on the vehicle itself to secure a firearm within them. Um, and beyond that, Department of Criminal Investigation has 12 out of over 240 vehicles that has a vault where they can lock up a handgun inside of it. Something's being done about it? Yes. Over time, the newer vehicles are being outfitted with these locking rifle racks and gun vaults, but Department of Public Safety's policy is to not retrofit older cars with newer uh, newer equipment when they began installing it. And just to be clear, is this a reaction to what happened in St. Louis, or is this something that was going on? We don't have anything to suggest that it was a reaction to it. Um, in fact, we were told specifically by Adam DeCamp, who's a special agent with the Department of Criminal Investigation, that the agency began installing uh, gun vaults prior to this incident in 2018. So you end up with three stories, even though you started off with this one. What's your takeaway from that as a reporter as far as the way we go about news gathering and uh, the way information takes us when we're trying to put together a story? My biggest takeaway has really been to not ignore my gut. When I'm looking through records, when I'm listening back to interviews, um, there are at times very subtle pieces of information that led me in a direction. Um, and in large part, it was the instinct upon processing that information. And then there's some things like a stolen gun that, you know, couldn't really, couldn't be much more obvious that it's a story that you need to pursue. But, um, you know, if you're not putting in the proper amount of time and the proper attention to detail, you're not going to find the fact that these guns, you know, that this gun was stolen. And, and if you're not asking the right questions in the interview, you're not going to find out that there was no way that this officer could have locked up this vehicle in the car beyond how she already had, or this agent, I apologize. You can read the uh, stories by Kay at iowawatch.org. They're all there for you to look at, iowawatch.org. Thanks, Kay. Thank you. Kay Rambo, a 2019 Iowa Watch intern and Iowa State University student who engaged in a nearly year-long reporting project under the direction of Iowa Watch's Lyle Muller. The first two stories in the reporting project are now online at iowawatch.org. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org. 